It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Infamous for their deadly bites, black widow spiders have a well-earned reputation as killers. However, it isn't the venom, but their mating habits for which they have earned the name. Driven by a biological urge, a female widow spider will devour her mate after intercourse. She sees no more use for the males of the species, deciding that his body would be better used to feed the children growing inside of her. Cold, calculated, predictable. It's easy to see why Stacy Castor of Onondaga County, New York, was likened to the poisonous arachnid. But unlike the widow spider, Stacy was driven by something else, an emotionless practicality that would drive each and every one of her kills in a new and depraved manner. Mrs. Castor, you are a murderer, and for that you will pay. Convicted in the murder of her second husband, David Castor, in 2005, evidence suggests that Stacy Castor was culpable in the deaths of her first husband, her father, and likely the attempted murder of her own daughter. Showing no remorse, remaining calm under scrutiny, and expressing an inability to empathize with others, all but defined her demeanor during a period of intense public scrutiny. I will never say I did something I didn't do. I will maintain my innocence until the day that I die. Stacy never opened herself up to any psychological examination, but there are signs and signals throughout her story that suggest she was something more than the black widow that she was branded. Hi, I'm Claire, and this is Female Criminals. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into the life of Stacy Castor as she terrorized loved ones with a deadly poisoning spree. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa. Hi, everyone. We'd like to ask a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of Female Criminals on your favorite podcast directory? It seems simple, but it really helps us out. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there because a new episode comes out every Wednesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Active from 2000 to 2007 in Onondaga County, New York, Stacy Castor was responsible for the deaths of both her husbands, possibly the death of her father, and the atrocious attempted murder of her own daughter. She mainly used antifreeze to commit her crimes, and she also came to be known for her kill-for-gain tact. If she stood to benefit, 
Stacy didn't have a problem with taking a life. Best known for the murder of her second husband, David Castor, Stacy's crimes were far worse than they appeared at face value. Her transition from mother to murderer took years to fully form, but once it did, she left a trail of bodies in her wake. An only child, Stacy was born July 24, 1967, to Judy Eaton and Jerry Daniels in Clay, New York, where she led a relatively quiet childhood. Despite the modern infamy of her crimes, little information exists about her early life. This suggests that it may have been unimportant to later events. Before Stacy became the woman immortalized as a stone-cold murderess, she was a teenager, deeply in love with the man who would become her first husband, Michael Wallace. It was 1985. Tall and thin, 17-year-old Stacy was an attractive redhead who was able to blend in with a more mature crowd. One night, while she was out at a bar with some friends, she met 23-year-old Michael Wallace, and the two of them hit it off right away. They went on to have their first date at that same bar. (laughs) Friends of the couple later spoke about how they had never seen a pair of people deeper in love, but also wondered about the extreme differences in their personalities. Wallace was described as outgoing and gregarious, the life of the party. Stacy was the ice to his fire. Withdrawn, she held people at arm's length, not really sure how to interact with others. Still, opposites have been known to attract. In 1988, three years after their first date, 21-year-old Stacy married the now 27-year-old Michael Wallace at her parents' home in Clay, New York. It's not unheard of to marry a first love, and there weren't any blatant indicators that Stacy was hiding anything from her loved ones. It's important to note that Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or a psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Not all killers start with obvious signs or murderous intentions. There's always the chance that Stacy didn't understand herself, at least not yet. At a certain age, most children and adolescents display certain sociopathic tendencies, a lack of empathy, increased self-centeredness, and extreme primal emotions. Dr. David Blackburn, a psychologist at Baylor Scott and White Health, suggests that there are no children sociopaths, and it isn't until later in life that the wolf separates themselves from the sheep. Married to a loving husband with her first child on the way, Stacy had her entire life ahead of her. It's completely possible that Stacy believed that she was happy. The self-awareness of what she would become just hasn't happened yet. Researchers like Santa Monica College professor Howard Kamler suggest that it's not uncommon for an individual that suffers from an antisocial or sociopathic disorder to be unaware of what they really are. They may realize something is off about the world around them, but rarely consider that it is actually them that are different. And for all intents and purposes, Stacy appeared to be a loving wife and daughter. Which only made the emergence of her true nature all the more horrifying. It was in 1988, soon after their marriage, 
that 21-year-old Stacy and 27-year-old Wallace welcomed their first child, Ashley, into the world. It's possible that the couple got married because of Stacy's pregnancy. It's not out of the question and would explain their sudden rush to tie the knot. Adding a baby introduces a new stressor into any relationship. Even in the late 80s, the average age for women having their first child was 25. A study in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology suggests that when a child is added to any marriage, the happiness of the couple declines. There are no sources to suggest how Stacy reacted to parenthood early on, but educated guesses can be made with the use of what is known about her now. In clear-cut cases of antisocial personality disorder, or APD, raising children is out of the question. Individuals with the disorder are often violent and impulsive. On the other hand, they don't display remorse for their actions and typically show a blatant disregard for societal laws. This is in line with how Stacy began to act. If she was suffering from a specific disorder, she went entirely undiagnosed. To the outside world, she was able to conceal any manifestation of her symptoms until it was too late. However, the possibility she was high-functioning seems probable. High-functioning examples of APD are rare and are often classified as sociopaths. Dr. James Fallon, a neurobiologist and diagnosed sociopath himself, suggests that he is a rare example. Fallon chose to stick around and raise a family despite his apathy towards them. He claims to view others with indifference and observes people as a form of amusement or with a sort of intellectual curiosity. If this was the case with Stacy, a child wouldn't be seen as a person, but more of a possession. Available sources aren't clear about why the couple lacked money, but we know that money was an issue for them. It's possible that Stacy didn't work after Ashley's birth, choosing instead to spend time with her infant daughter. She may have also been going to a community or technical college to train for a career as an ambulance dispatcher. Regardless of what it was that caused the Wallace family this financial stress, all of our sources agree that it added a strain to home life. But despite these money problems, three years later, in 1991, 24-year-old Stacy and 30-year-old Wallace had their second daughter, Bree. It wasn't the finances, but the change in familial relationships that were immediately relevant. Friends, family, and even Stacy herself would go on to describe a shift in the family dynamic after Bree was born. Stacy believed that Wallace began to show favoritism towards their youngest, treating her like his princess. That seems like a well-worn stereotype. Many families have similar instances they can cite that have never led to anything more than the occasional disagreement. Stacy may have seen her children as belonging to her and her alone, which makes each choice her daughters made seem significant. We often think of children as miniature copies of ourselves, but Stacy may have seen her offspring as novelties. She knew she was expected to go through the motions of having them, but if neurobiologist James Fallon is to be believed, that doesn't mean she had to love them. It wasn't long before family had to take a back seat to full-time work. Stacy, by this point, must have finished her education, 
and was working as an ambulance dispatcher in the daytime, while Wallace worked nights as a mechanic. Again, even as a dual-income household, the couple barely had enough to survive month to month. Stacy's choice of job in emergency services offers an interesting new profile to examine. The position of ambulance dispatcher was neither simple nor rewarding. Long hours coupled with limited resources and the possibility of fatal mistakes can make for a combination that can cause a person to crack over time. Strictly viewed through the lens of Stacy herself, her choice of job makes it likely that she enjoyed being the difference between life and death. Doctors, nurses, and other emergency personnel accept their responsibilities as a part of their positions. This career path is certainly not unique to Stacy alone. Coupled with the wrong personality, events can go very badly. Historically, it's a very specific niche of killer that chooses this line of work. Back in the 90s, for example, Kristen Gilbert was a nurse who enjoyed inducing heart attacks in her patients. She would then respond to the coded emergency and resuscitate the victims. She was considered an angel of death amongst criminologists. As with most profiles, there must be a spectrum for this type of individual. To be specific, Kristen Gilbert is what is referred to as a malignant hero, as classified by the psychological profile found in the DSM-5. This personality type will endanger the lives of their patients and then rush to save them to appear benevolent. Other forms within the spectrum of angelic killers include mercy killers and sadistic killers. As a dispatcher, Stacy wasn't even in the proper professional position to make those life or death choices. And there's no evidence to suggest that she committed a crime while on the job. There's always the chance that she had a fascination with that aspect of her job, but had not chosen to act on her impulses. Typically in these situations, a killer evolves from what they perceive as a merciful act to the enjoyment of murder. Criminologists will often look for red flags in determining how to profile specific killers. In a study from the World Heritage Encyclopedia on similar offenders, Stacy came to share multiple traits with other killers in the niche. However, there was one blatant commonality. In each of her crimes, her preferred method of execution would become the use of poison. And Stacy was going to find that antifreeze was her poison of choice. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. And now back to the story. It all began with Stacy Castor's first husband, Michael Wallace. By the end of 1999, 32-year-old Stacy and 38-year-old Wallace had been together for nearly 15 years. Their daughters, Ashley and Bree, were 11 and 8, respectively. We don't know when exactly, but some point following Bree's birth, Stacy and Wallace began to grow increasingly distant. The widening gap between the couple fueled rumors that both Stacy and Wallace were engaged in extramarital affairs. No one has ever substantiated these claims or come forward. However, from what little can be gleaned, it was the internal family dynamics which eventually pushed Stacy over the edge. Since birth, 
Bree, Stacy's youngest daughter, was doted upon by her father. In an action that cleanly divided the family, Stacy chose to show favoritism towards her eldest daughter, Ashley. Both mother and daughter claimed they saw each other as best friends. It became a kind of game for Stacy, a power struggle. Losing the attention of one of her daughters must have been maddening to her. And here's the point at which Stacy becomes particularly unique. She wasn't just a woman looking to get ahead, as the Black Widow moniker might suggest, but also someone who might possibly have started to show sociopathic tendencies. If she felt like she was losing one of her daughters to someone else, that may have been what triggered her to act. And during December of 1999, act she did. It was Christmas Eve, and the whole family had come together for a meal. But something was off. Wallace was ill. His health had been deteriorating over the past few weeks. This was the first time anyone had really noticed something was wrong. <coughs> Wallace's sister-in-law, Milan Keim, recalled Wallace acting like he was drunk and appeared unsteady. Others recall him seeming puffy and swollen. They all suggested that he seek medical advice. At this point, Wallace was well on his way to becoming Stacy's first kill. But even to her, this was new. It was slower, more experimental than any of her future crimes. Using a combination of rat poison and antifreeze, it's likely that Stacy was giving just enough of the deadly mixture to Wallace to make it a gradual death. The most lethal serial killers in history all have one thing in common, poison. And it's easy to see why. Unlike a gun, there's rarely a sound, nothing to draw attention. Whereas with a knife, there would be a mess to clean up. Poison, in contrast, doesn't usually leave behind much physical evidence like blood spatter or fingerprints. In 1836, frustrated by a lack of evidence in poisoning cases, James Marsh invented an early form of forensics in order to test for arsenic, the Marsh test. Until that time, poisoning victims were declared dead of natural causes, with poisoners often acquitted on reasonable doubt. Even throughout contemporary history, several famous poisoners got away with their crimes for years. The case of Dr. Harold Shipman, who Vanessa discussed in her other ParCast podcast, Serial Killers, is a perfect example of this. Branded Dr. Death by the media, by the time he was caught, it was estimated that Shipman was responsible for more than 200 deaths. Poisoners have racked up an innumerable body count and are to be taken seriously. Whether morphine, cyanide, or antifreeze, poison remains as dangerous a weapon as any other in the right hands. The question remains, why antifreeze? There are plenty of other household chemicals to use. Certain substances like rat poison can require substantially larger amounts to kill humans. Still, a potent dose of fumarin or warfarin, chemicals found in rat poison, would be just as likely to get the job done. It all comes down to a single ingredient, ethylene glycol. Ethylene glycol, the chemical found in antifreeze, is both sweet and odorless. It can be added to any food or drink with the victim being none the wiser. 
I think now is a good time to clear up a common misconception, that poison is a woman's weapon. Murder doesn't discriminate over methodology. According to a report from the FBI, a decade's worth of supplemental homicide data from 2000 through 2010 paints a clear picture. First, men were responsible for about 90% of all murders, starting with the most popular. The preferred methods of murder for both men and women were firearms, knives, and beatings. Poison clocked in as number seven on the list for women at 2.5%. In the years from 2000 to 2010, that percentage only accounted for around 425 murders in total. Men used poison at about 0.4% of the time, which was still 200 more victims than women. The use of poison doesn't seem to chalk Stacy's crimes up to passion. Her choice of weapon must be indicative of what she had set out to do. The American Journal of Psychology, Volume 3, supports the conclusion that a willingness to premeditate, as suggested by poison, indicates a level of sadistic control. Poison, especially antifreeze, is a slow and excruciatingly painful way to die. And in the end, her motivations were chalked up to money. Stacy's actions were not out of malice, but control, entertainment, and financial practicality. As we mentioned earlier, money is what differentiated her from an angel of death and made her into the black widow that would prey upon those closest to her. By slowly poisoning her husband Wallace in the winter of 1999, it seems as though Stacy was testing her boundaries, figuring out what worked and what didn't. In a study conducted by Marissa Harrison, an associate professor of Pennsylvania State University, she found that female serial killers all shared similar patterns. Stacy wasn't adhering to a pattern just yet. But according to evidence from Professor Harrison's broader study, Stacy was following an evolutionary predisposition to secure resources. If thousands of years ago, men were hunters and women were gatherers, the comparison still stands today. If Wallace dies, Stacy gains wealth. At least in this instance, her actions put her squarely in the Black Widow profile. Stacy didn't have to wait long for the results she wanted. Despite the urging of friends and family that the declining Wallace go see a doctor, he never made it. In January of 2000, Wallace was homesick. Ashley, only 11 at the time, watched as her father's face contorted, took his last breath, and didn't move again. To an 11-year-old Ashley, Wallace had simply fallen asleep. It wouldn't be until later that evening that she was told what had really happened. Her father was gone forever. With such a prolonged period of illness, there was little to suspect any wrongdoing. At the hospital, the doctor pronounced then 38-year-old Michael Wallace dead of a heart attack. Wallace's older sister, Rosemary Corbett, didn't buy that narrative. Wallace's skin had turned a dark purple color in death, but the doctor wrote it off. Rosemary demanded an autopsy. Stacy, sensing the possibility of discovery, refused to allow doctors to perform any exams. This sounds suspicious in hindsight, 
But Stacy played it off in a convincing manner. To everyone else, Stacy was a grieving widow in shock at her husband's sudden death. Another valid reason being that the doctor had just declared Wallace's death a heart attack. And Stacy might have chosen not to argue with a professional. This is a moment that suggests Stacy may have exhibited some sociopathic tendencies. According to the DSM-5, a key trait of a sociopath is that they're able to react in ways that the general populace find acceptable. So Stacy might have been playing a part here, putting on some sort of act for the hospital and Wallace's family. If Stacy was able to manipulate both herself and others, then she knew what she was and that she was capable of wish fulfillment at any cost. According to James Fallon, the neurobiologist and diagnosed sociopath we mentioned earlier, individuals with sociopathy are often able to give convincing displays of emotion. They've spent their entire lives learning social cues and can conjure them when need be. And besides, who would deny a wife's request to respect her dead husband's remains? Who indeed? But that was the end of it for now. Stacy received her $55,000 payout on Wallace's insurance policy and inherited his assets. Only a few members of Michael Wallace's family suspected anything more than natural causes, but even they accepted the results eventually. Now, Stacy had the assurance that if she could murder once and be rewarded, she could do it again. According to criminologist Scott Bond, a serial killer's first crime is the most difficult. It represents a learning curve and serves to embolden them. Infamous serial killers such as Jeffrey Dahmer and Joel Rifkin have stated that their first murder was by far the most difficult one for them. In a broad sense, each time a serial killer commits a crime, they gain valuable confidence. This confidence allows them to up the stakes of each murder, which will often result in a mistake and land them behind bars. Stacy was only at the onset of her journey. And it didn't take long this time. It was February 26th of 2002, only two years after the untimely death of Michael Wallace. Stacy's father, Jerry Daniels, was hospitalized for a lung ailment. It seemed as though he would pull through scheduled to be released the very next day. But instead, Jerry Daniels found a different kind of release. Stacy, now 34, visited her father in the hospital and waited for an opportunity to exert her newfound confidence. According to John Corbett, a relative of Michael Wallace who was there at the time, Stacy came into the room with an open can of soda. Corbett later went on to suggest that the soda was poisoned. It isn't a surprise that Corbett was there, as the two families had grown close over the 15 years that Stacy and Wallace were married. Whether or not the drink was spiked, it was a suspicious action that Corbett remembered years later during the height of Stacy's infamy. If the soda was in fact poisoned, Stacy must have known or suspected that it wouldn't have taken much to kill a man in Daniel's weakened state. And it didn't. Jerry Daniels died the next day on February 27, 2002. Suddenly, two men in Stacy's life had died, leaving her the sole executrix of their estates. 
Perhaps Stacy had learned that she couldn't allow anyone to look too closely at her father's body. In short order, she had Daniels cremated and placed in a plot of land she had purchased in the Owasco Rural Cemetery. He would rest right next to her late husband, Michael Wallace. It's hard to imagine that was a coincidence. To place two victims side by side in the cemetery like this feels like this is a purposeful move. With two deaths to her name, Stacy had become a serial killer. Loosely defined, a serial killer is an individual who kills at least two people. What sets them apart from a mass murderer or spree killer is that they must commit the crimes over a period longer than a month to allow for an emotional cool-down time. In this instance, the collective remains of the victims became a kind of public shrine to Stacy's murders. And it wasn't too long before Stacy chose to kill again. Only this time, her actions were better planned, and the end result more gruesome. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to female criminals. For the years in between the death of Michael Wallace in 2000 and her second marriage in 2003, little information exists about Stacy Castor's life. We do know that when Stacy met David Castor, the man who would become her second husband, it was clear he was her type. A big, ruddy man, there were echoes of Michael Wallace there. Most strikingly, he was already in his late 40s, a decade older than Stacy. Born in 1957, David Castor had already been married and divorced twice by the time he met Stacy. His son, David Jr., and most recent ex-wife, Janice Poissant, were still a part of his life. It's certain that Stacy knew about Janice and David Jr. It's also not improbable that Castor's closeness with his previous family bothered Stacy to some degree. They were both obstacles to anything Stacy might want. Stacy and David got married on August 16, 2003. And finally, 36-year-old Stacy took on the name of the woman that would fascinate a nation, becoming Stacy Castor. But even on the couple's wedding day, there were hints at discord. One particular photo from the day of the wedding shows the family standing together Everyone but Ashley has a smile on their face. Instead of even a forced grin, Ashley has her face turned down and away from the camera. By August of 2005, the Castors had been married for two years and appeared to be a happy family. Both Stacy and David worked together at their successful heating and air conditioning business, with Stacy having given up her work as an ambulance dispatcher sometime prior to this. Stacy's two daughters, Ashley and Bree, now 17 and 15 respectively, were not particularly close to their new stepfather. That would later be cited as a source of tension in the family. Stacy's mother, Judy Eaton, remembered that neither Ashley nor Bree took to David. Ashley in particular was rebellious and questioned everything David ever asked of her. This created a source of constant conflict in the household. If control was what Stacy wanted over her family, it seemed to slip from her grasp at every turn. 
Each disagreement between David and her children reminded Stacy that everything was not as she wanted it. In 2005, only two years after their marriage, the Castors experienced a breaking point in their relationship. David had taken it upon himself to plan a vacation to celebrate their two-year wedding anniversary. A romantic gesture that soured when Stacy refused to leave 15-year-old Bree, her youngest daughter, at home. Even if the version of events that Stacy later shared with friends and family can be believed, she didn't need much of an excuse to go after David. If she wanted him dead, nothing was going to change her mind. Stacy claimed that David hadn't been the same since his father passed away earlier in the year. Their business had also recently lost money, which added financial fire to the couple's arguments. Stacy said that by August 20th, David had angrily locked himself in his room with a bottle of brandy to sulk. Ashley was in and out of the house since she worked all weekend. Bree remembered being worried about her stepfather and wondered why he hadn't come out. She didn't act beyond her curiosity, afraid to anger her stepfather further. One of Stacy's friends, Danny Coleman, recalled asking Stacy to spend the weekend with her. Stacy, intent on the atrocious crime she was about to commit, chose to stay in her home. She later claimed to have left the house as often as possible in order to keep her distance from her angry husband. While the timeline isn't clear, investigators believe that Stacy began poisoning David a few days before his death on August 22, 2005. She started slowly at first to weaken him. It's important to remember, Stacy wanted the control. But beyond control, her actions were sadistic. Mentioned earlier, a subcategory of an angel of death is the sadistic killer. This describes an individual who wants to exert their power over a victim. It's likely that Stacy wanted to watch as her poison leached David's strength from him, as his organs began to give out one by one. Then, on the night of the 21st, Stacy sped up the process and used a turkey baster to force-feed her husband the deadly antifreeze. She administered the final dose to an unconscious David as he lay, unmoving, in a puddle of bloody vomit. In an effort to shake blame, Stacy would claim that she had placed an ear to the bedroom door and heard thunderous snoring. But if she had heard anything at all, it would have been the sound of her husband dying a gruesome and difficult death. Once the deed was done, she hid the baster in the kitchen trash. At around 2 p.m. on the 22nd, Stacy called the police from her and David's heating and air conditioning business. Stacy claimed to have tried David's cell phone multiple times in an effort to get a hold of him, worried over his absence from work. Stacy then asked police to meet at her residence and stood in her front yard until Sergeant Robert Willoughby of the Onondaga County Sheriff's Department arrived. She appeared to be an anxious wife, telling Sergeant Willoughby that David had been depressed over recent shortcomings at work and that he had a gun in his room. Armed with that information, Sergeant Willoughby rushed to David's door and forced his way inside. 
Willoughby recalled seeing David Castor lying on the bed, completely naked and deathly still in a pool of his own vomit. Glasses of cranberry juice and brandy sat nearby, but it was the half-empty glass of bright green antifreeze that would hold his attention. On the surface, it appeared as though David had taken his own life with the neon-colored poison. Detectives Dominic Spinelli and Sean Price arrived on the scene and were immediately dubious about Stacy's story. She spun a tale of despair, claiming that David had been spiraling since the recent death of his father and that a down year in profits had left them both on edge. Stacy also brought up another serial killer that she believed might have influenced David's actions. Lynn Turner, who operated from the mid-90s to the mid-aughts. The Turner family and our family have lost loved ones and our, our families are scarred forever. Our grandchildren have lost their father and now they've lost their mother. And it, it appears, according to the evidence, all for money. And it's a sad, sad thing. Stacy claimed that David and she had seen a story about Turner on the news and suggested that it might have been a reason why her husband had chosen to take his life in this manner. The original Black Widow killer. The parallels between Turner and Stacy are uncanny. Both women worked in emergency services, each had two children, and had chosen to target the men in their lives. Most strikingly, Turner used antifreeze as her poison of choice in the murders of both a husband and a fiancé. It was eventually due to the use of the automotive fluid that Turner was branded the antifreeze killer. According to friends and family, Turner was a materialistic woman with a spending problem that kept her in perpetual debt. By her first murder in 1995, Turner had accrued tens of thousands in outstanding credit card bills. She then used her husband's life insurance policy to cash out. She tried something similar with a fiancé in 2001, but he had allowed his insurance policy to lapse before she killed him. In Turner's case, she cooked the antifreeze into a few servings of jello and fed it to her unsuspecting victims. For Turner, the poison was more about using what was at hand to commit the crime than anything else. Antifreeze was most certainly a weapon of convenience since the true goal was to receive a financial payout. No psychiatrist or psychologist ever examined Stacy, so it's hard to determine which profile best fits her case. However, it's easy to see why a comparison can be drawn between the two women. By the time of David Castor's murder, Turner had already been found guilty of her first husband's murder in 2004. There was national media coverage, and it's more than likely that Stacy had heard something at this point. With Turner in Georgia and Stacy half a country away in New York, no evidence suggests that either woman ever met or operated together. However, the similarities are hard to overlook. By her third kill, Stacy was more than just a black widow. Unlike Turner, Stacy's financial motivations had begun to appear secondary. According to Dr. Scott Bond's study on how serial killers progress, it stood to reason that Stacy enjoyed each heinous act without regards for the consequences. And after David Castor's death, the actions leading up to the crime 
as well as her story itself, had become more intricate. And the details supported her. A drunk husband who had locked himself in his room after an argument with his wife. A business that had experienced a down year. A glass of antifreeze next to his bed. Everything seemed cut and dry. It would take time for the forensics team to search the house and find the turkey baster hidden in the trash. It took even longer for them to run any tests on it. Ironically, it was the autopsy by the county medical examiner, Dr. Robert Stopaker, that suggested Stacy was innocent, while crystals found in David's kidney showed ethylene glycol toxicity, or death by antifreeze, the case was ruled a suicide and closed. It's important to note that the autopsy was done within 24 hours of David's death. At this point, no DNA had been pulled from the turkey baster. Without that key piece of information and what appeared to be a suicide on the surface, Dr. Stopaker was well within his right to call the death a suicide. David Castor then joined Michael Wallace and Jerry Daniels in the Owasco Rural Cemetery. But investigators refused to buy into Stacy's version of events. It was this skepticism that helped them put together a profile of a woman worse than they had ever imagined. Next week, we will continue our examination of the twisted serial poisoner, Stacy Castor. Her unspeakable crimes only grow darker as we venture down the rabbit hole of her warped mindset. We'll study her almost unbelievable final crime and the depths to which she would sink in order to keep her freedom, attempting to murder her favorite daughter for the security of a false suicide note confession. And we will examine each step of the investigation that led to a shocking trial and reveal a net of deception that encompassed dozens of people. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Female Criminals, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C. AST.com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Join us next Wednesday as we continue delving into the twisted mind of Stacy Castor. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Female Criminals was written by Edward Hamill and stars Claire Delamar and Vanessa Richardson.